Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1? Last weekend, a husband and wife in their late 50s boarded a plane in Medellin, Colombia, bound for Mexico. Since it was Good Friday, it probably didn't seem real unusual that they were carrying a Bible. When the customs officials examined the Bible, they found seven pounds of cocaine in the pages. Now, that's rather shocking, but I would have to give them this. At least they used their Bible more than most people. What do you do with your Bible? Some people use it as a coffee table display. Some people like it to make a nice appearance on a bookshelf. Some people use it on the floorboard of their car to keep those papers from flying around. Others use it as the centerpiece of their daily lives. Peter's going to challenge us in this area this morning. He's going to answer the question, what's the Bible good for? And in this passage, beginning in chapter 1, verse 22, he's going to point out three things the Word of God can do. It can produce love, it can produce life, and it can produce growth. First of all, it can produce love. Verse 22, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Now in the previous passage, Peter talked about our new relationship with the Father. And the key word there in verse 14 is obedient. Now he's going to talk about our new relationship with our brothers and sisters, and the key word is love. But Peter's not just talking about love in some superficial way. He's not talking about just going through the motions. He's not talking about play acting. The kind of love Peter is talking about in verse 22 is sincere love. The Greek word there is anhupokritos, unhypocritical, unfeigned love. Not like the guy in the beer commercial who says, I love you, man. Peter is saying, not smile and fake it, but hug and mean it. You say, well, how do you get that kind of love? Look at verse 22 again. It says, you have purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. You see, if you're going to have a pure love, it's going to have to start with a pure soul. This week I cleaned out the garage and I had oil stains and tire marks on the concrete floor. I've always been of the opinion that you can't get those off. That you just have to live with those. I mean, I take used to take flour and throw them down there and just get up the loose oil and they stayed there. Well, my wife bought something called 
Parks Concrete Cleaner. And it was said it was concentrated. And so I poured it on the oil spots and I scrubbed around a little bit and I washed it off and my oil spots are gone. I have a pure garage floor. What's that? I'm going to go door to door. <laughs> and tell people about my pure garage floor. What is it that needs to be cleaned off your soul? What is it that stains and marks your soul? Well, it's sin. And sin, in its simplest definition, is selfishness. You see, you can't love other people from a selfish soul. And sometimes we take the attitude, well, that's just the way I am. Those selfish stains and selfish tendencies on my soul are just something I have to live with. How do you get selfishness cleaned off your soul? Is there a cleanser that will purify the soul? We'll look again at verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. You see, there's one thing that can purify your soul. And that's the Word of God, because it's concentrated. In fact, it's 100% truth. Even when Jesus wants to purify a soul, he uses the Word of God. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 26, it describes what Jesus is doing for the church, and it says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, how? By the washing of water with the Word. And if you will look closely at verse 22, you'll see a formula here. Obedience to the Word brings purity of soul, which brings a sincere love. And you will not arrive at a sincere love without first going through the first two steps. Important for us to understand what you do with the Word of God has a direct impact on your relationship to others. Show me someone who is genuinely loving his brothers and sisters, and I will show you someone who is in the Word of God and obedient to the Word of God. Show me someone who's having conflicts in his relationships, and I'll show you someone who is either neglecting or rejecting the Word of God. Show me someone who's not loving other people, and I will show you someone who is suffering from spiritual malnutrition, who is not reading, hearing, obeying the Word of God, because the Word of God produces love. Secondly, it can produce life. Verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding Word of God. 
Two ways the word seed is used in the New Testament. It's used of the kind of seed a farmer throws down, and it's used of the reproductive seed. And I think in the context here, it's very obvious that he's talking about the reproductive seed. Now, if you care to dissect your physical birth, it can all be attributed to a seed. At one time, you were just a potential human being in the form of an unfertilized egg in the womb of your mother. And I'm no medical expert, but the best I can understand, you had a one-month lease. Actually, less than that. Like so many eggs before you, you were facing eviction papers. You were going to get flushed out. But along came your father's seed. And as a result, you were conceived and you were born. And you see, the same holds true with the spiritual birth. It can be attributed to a seed. And Peter says the seed that brings about the new birth is the Word of God. You would not be born again without God's Word. Jesus said in John 5, 24, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. In John 6, 63, he said, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. At the end of his gospel, John wrote this in John 20, 31, These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He said later in Romans 10.17, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And James said it perhaps most clearly of all in James 1.18. He said, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. It's this word that produces life. Now what does that tell you? It tells you if you're intent on reaching someone for Jesus Christ, you had better use the word of God because it's the word that brings about the new birth. I got a note this week about a church that attracted visitors by having a Titanic Sunday. They decorated the church like a ship. They designed the bulletin like a boarding pass. The greeters wore orange life vests, and the children were given packs of lifesavers. Now that's great, as long as they're giving people something more than candy. Because there are a variety of ways to get people into a church building. There is only one way to get people into heaven, and that's the Word of God. God's Word is life-giving. It is the seed that brings about the new birth. And then the third thing about the Word of God, it can produce growth. And for that, slide down to chapter 2 and verse 2. 
where we read, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Not only is the Word the seed that initiates spiritual life, it is the milk that sustains spiritual life. You see, I am born again by the Word and I grow by the Word. How come some Christians grow faster than other Christians? Well, it's real simple. They are reading, hearing, sitting under, applying, meditating on the Word of God. It is the Word of God that brings about maturity and growth in a Christian. So how is a person born again? Through the Word. How does a person show sincere love? Through the Word. How does a person grow as a Christian? Through the Word. You say, well, how can this book, leather, paper, ink, do all that? What's so special about this book? Well, I want you to notice four qualities of the Word of God that Peter highlights here. He tells us it's true, it's indestructible, it's living, and it's everlasting. First of all, it's true, verse 22. He refers to it as the truth. Now, we live in a day when truth is considered to be relative. The question people are asking today is not what is absolute, but what works. The question people are asking today is not what is right, but what can I get away with? And we live in a day when truth has taken a back seat to political correctness, revisionist history, spin doctors. You never know quite who to believe today. You have to read the newspaper with a skeptical eye. You have to listen to the news with a skeptical ear. Isn't it refreshing to know that there's somewhere you can go to find the truth? Jesus said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. This book tells me where I came from. It tells me why I'm here. And it tells me where I'm going. It tells me the truth about God, the truth about His plans, the truth about morality, the truth about human destiny, the truth about life and love and relationships. I was watching Good Morning America the other day while I was eating breakfast. They had an interior, a new age interior designer on there. She was saying you need to arrange your furniture in such a way that it gives you the most cosmic energy. And I was thinking, you know, I've got to get that lady over because I've got a lamp that's really draining me. They followed that with a story about a man who has a government grant to study the correlation between the shape of a person's hand and their sexual identity. Now that's revolutionary information. I mean, if we get to this stage, we can eliminate that little spot on your driver's license where you mark M or F. 
And I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking, they should call this show, Good Night, America. Listen, amidst, amidst all the misinformation and the shadows and the deception and the falsehood and the lies, the Word of God shines forth as the truth. Secondly, it's indestructible. Verse 23 says, You've been born again not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. The Word of God cannot perish it does not diminish over time. It does not become obsolete. It cannot be destroyed. Even though men have tried to do so for over 1,900 years. In 303 A.D., Diocletian, the emperor of Rome, ordered all Christians either imprisoned or put to death, and every copy of the Scriptures destroyed by fire. The Bible survived. In England, in the time of Henry V, Bible reading was a crime punishable by death. The Bible survived. About 200 years ago, Voltaire, the French philosopher, predicted that in 100 years from his time, the Bible would be swept from existence. Well, as it turned out, Voltaire was swept from existence. And 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society bought Voltaire's house and press and used it to produce Bibles. And in the same year that Voltaire's book sold in Paris for less than eight cents, the British Museum paid the Russian government half a million dollars for one copy of a Bible manuscript. The Bible is imperishable. It's incorruptible. It's indestructible. Someone has described the Bible as an anvil with many broken hammers lying around it. Thirdly, it's living. Verse 23 describes it as the living Word of God. There is something in these words that is living as opposed to being dead. It's alive. It's fresh. It speaks to us. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says the Word of God is living. It is active. It is sharp. It pierces like a sword. It divides. It judges. It's alive. It is able to penetrate my heart and bring conviction and change to my life. In 2 Kings 22, they found a copy of the law, probably as much as a thousand years old, and they dusted it off, and they read it to King Josiah. And King Josiah tore his clothes and wept before God. It's a living word. The two disciples in Luke 24, 32 said, were not our hearts burning within us while He was speaking to us on the road, while He was opening the Scriptures to us. We study a book week after week that is 2,000 years old. And yet, as we study it, it's like a letter from heaven this morning. It's like the ink isn't even dry. It is fresh. This ancient book is alive. 
Try studying a 2,000-year-old book on mathematics or sociology or science. See how fresh they are. See how pertinent they are. You know, there's a difference between something that is simply true and living truth. The Word of God is living truth. There's a lot of dead truth around. If someone comes to you and says, I don't have any answers to life, I'm weighed down by sin, I'm in spiritual darkness, and you say, well, E equals MC squared. Listen, friend, the area of a circle is pi r squared. Mass is neither created nor destroyed. Water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Boise is the capital of Idaho. That's truth. But that's not living truth. You see, God's Word is living truth. God's Word doesn't just give you knowledge in the mind. It brings life to the soul. And then the fourth thing he tells us about the Word of God is that it's everlasting. The end of verse 23 says it is the abiding Word of God. It's abiding. It's eternal. And to illustrate that, Peter quotes from Isaiah 40 in verses 24 and 25, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. But the Word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the Word which was preached to you. A flower is one of the most beautiful things in the world. We recently had several adorning our yard. And when a flower comes up, you want to say, I hope somebody comes by soon to see this. Because about the time that flower reaches its full glory, it begins to dry up and wither. And that's the way it is with everything in this world. Everything dies. Grass, flowers, people. The earth is one big cemetery. But, verse 25 says, the Word of the Lord abides forever. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The word of the Lord abides forever. Now that's pretty impressive. In fact, that's downright amazing. And the question that arises is, how should we respond to God's word? This Word that is true, indestructible, living, everlasting. This Word that produces life, produces love, produces growth. What should we do? Well, Peter gives us three exhortations in this passage. Three applications to ourselves. The first is to lay aside chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, laying aside or putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. That phrase, putting aside, is is used other places in Scripture of someone who strips off their clothes. And Peter says, lay aside all, all, all. Lay aside everything related to your old lifestyle. 
Someone once said to a well-known preacher, I'd give the world to know the Bible like you do. And he said, well, that's good because that's exactly what it'll cost you. We have to put off the old. And Peter names five things here we're to put off. What's interesting is they're all things that destroy relationships. The first is malice. That's a general term for wickedness. It really has to do with the intention to do harm. When I'm maliciously desiring ill will toward another person. The second is guile. That word means deceit or craftiness. To snare someone. To entrap someone. In fact, the same Greek word used here is a word that's used for bait that a fisherman would put on his hook. Fishing is a deceitful thing. Because fish think you're an animal lover. You're coming down to the water throwing food in the water until they're hooked. And that's what some people do in relationships. Guile is deceiving other people, manipulating other people, using other people. And then he mentions hypocrisy. That was a familiar word in that time. It was used among the Greek actors because they would put on various masks as they would come out on the stage. A hypocrite is one who wears a mask. Someone who pretends to be something he's not. He pretends to be pious. He pretends to be loving. He pretends to be caring. And then he mentions envy. And envy is really the very opposite of love because love desires the best for you at my expense. Envy desires the best for me at your expense. And then finally, he mentions slander. The, the Greek word is katalalia. It's, it's a word like you learned in English class called an onomatopoeia. That means a word that sounds like what it is. Like the word buzz. Well, this word means to talk behind someone's back. And it sounds like that, katalalia. Peter says, put aside katalalia. Put aside those things that destroy relationships. Malice, guile, hypocrisy, envy, slander. When your kids come in to supper and you put the food in front of them and they say, I'm not hungry, the problem is usually they've been eating some junk food somewhere. Well, this is spiritual junk food. And Peter says, you're to lay it aside. And then there's a second exhortation, and that is to long for, verses 2 and 3. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. We've heard a lot about newborn babies this morning. Newborn babies have a one-track mind. They long for milk. And if they can't get it, they will scream until they do. When you have a baby, you don't have to get out a chalkboard and teach them how to drink milk. It's an instinctive desire. And Peter wants us to be like newborn babies having an intense desire for the milk of the Word. 
We should be undistractedly, single-mindedly going to the Word of God every day and screaming if we don't get it. I like what Job said in Job 23.12. He said, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I would rather miss my daily meals than miss my daily time in God's Word. Because as Peter tells us here, this Word is what gives us the spiritual nutrients to grow. And so he says in verse 3, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. You tasted how sweet God's grace was at salvation. Now long for that same sweetness every day. When somebody comes to me and says, I'm discouraged, I'm frustrated, I'm defeated, I always ask them a simple question. I say, well, when's the last time you were in God's Word? And they'll say, well, I don't really remember. You see, if somebody came to me and said, Dan, I'm really feeling physically weak. Uh, in, in fact, I don't seem to have any energy. And I said, well, when's the last time you had a good meal. Well, I don't remember. You see, I can guarantee you that if you are not spending time in God's Word, then you are going to be spiritually inept. Peter says we're to lay aside the junk food and we're to long for the milk of the Word. And then he gives us a final exhortation and that is we are to love one another. And for that, go back to where we started in verse 22. It says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, here it is, fervently love one another from the heart. The formula is obedience to the Word brings a purified soul that brings sincere love but Peter goes beyond that and he says, I want you to love one another fervently from the heart. Now to understand this verse, you need to understand he uses two Greek words for love. The first time he uses a Greek word you're familiar with, Philadelphia. Obedience to the Word brings a pure soul which brings you the capacity to Philadelphia. Brotherly love. Love your brothers. Then he goes beyond that and he says, I want you to fervently agape one another from the heart. Now this is a word that Peter learned early on. You remember in John chapter 21 when Jesus came to Peter and he asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yeah, I love you. These two words are used there. Jesus said, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter said, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Peter, do you agape me? Lord, you know I phileo you. And then Jesus stepped down a level and he said, Peter, do you phileo me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, I phileo you. Peter was saying, Lord, I love you like a brother, but I'm not ready to get up to that real sacrificial love yet. But now when he writes his book, he has gotten there. And he's writing to you and I, and he says, God has prepared your heart for brotherly love. I want you to go beyond that, and I want you to agape one another. That is God's love, sacrificial love, that lays down my life.
for the brothers. And he says you're to do that fervently. It's never passive. Peter says you're to do it with full intensity going all out. And then he says it's to be from the heart. It's not surface love. It's deep down love. It's not with the lips. It's with the heart. And that should be the distinguishing feature of our new relationship with our brothers and sisters. Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And let me tell you something this morning. The only way that's going to happen is when you and I are in the Word of God. The Word of God can produce life It can produce love. It can produce growth. It is true, indestructible, living, everlasting. And so our response ought to be to lay aside those characteristics that poison relationships, to long for the Word like newborn babies, and to love one another fervently from the heart. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for this passage that reminds us what a powerful Word You have given us. Father, cause us to take that seriously. Cause us to daily, like little babies, hunger long for Your Word so that by it we may grow, so that by it we may truly love one another in the way You have called us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.